Next weekend is uh, Labor Day weekend, and as always, uh, North Stonington Bible Church has their Labor Day conference, and the speaker this year is uh, Charlie Clough, and we all enjoyed Charlie a tremendous amount, and that's always a good conference, so just remind you of that. It would be good for us to attend over there, and uh, we'll be getting a set of tapes, uh, media ministry. That's We're going to go with a new name. Instead of tapes and publications, since we really don't have too many publications, and we're out on the Internet, it's now media ministry. You media ministry guys need to uh, pay attention to that. We'll get a set of Charlie's tapes from the conference to put out on the uh, website on a subcategory. We're getting enough of his stuff now to where we can have a subcategory out there of Charlie Clough's uh, tapes. So that's... uh, that's one announcement. Let me see if there's anything else. I'm, my body thinks it's 3 in the morning, so just, you know, if I get into heresy this morning, we'll just let, you know, now that Dan's a reverend, we'll let Dan just come up and speak. And in fact, when you get ordained, you're supposed to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. So with that, I want to introduce Reverend Ingram as he comes forward with this morning to share from the Word. <laughs> just wanted to scare him a little bit. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart." Before we get into God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we will have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are ready, prepared to study the Word this morning, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you that we have this privilege to gather together in the freedom of this nation to worship you and to study your word unhindered by any external opposition, persecution, or being bound by any state regulation. Father, we thank you that we have a nation of freedom that still gives us this freedom despite the many trends and the many laws that that are encroaching upon that freedom. Father, especially at this time in this war on terrorism, we continue to pray for our national leadership, for our president, for members of Congress, for the leaders in the military, advisors, cabinet ministers. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they seek to define the course and that you, above all, will protect this nation and give those who are in charge of its security the wisdom, the insight, uh, bring about just the coincidences and circumstances whereby they will uh, discover those who are seeking to do harm to this nation. Father, we are still a nation that, for the most part, allows the free expression, free teaching of your word, the uh, sending out of missionaries, and we still support Israel. And Father, as a nation who is still engaged in those activities, we pray that you would continue to uh, give us this freedom and continue to protect us, that these things may continue. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that you would challenge us with your word and help those who especially need to listen to some of the things said this morning, that they would be receptive, because it is a time now in our history when there's a drastic need for well-prepared pastor teachers who fit the qualifications of this passage and who are indeed faithful stewards of the mysteries of your word. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.
seems to me this summer is the summer related to the gift of pastor-teacher. had the ordination down in Houston and had the opportunity to go through the questionnaires and be involved in that. Also going to Fort Worth in early August for the Conservative Theological Society meeting and having the opportunity to spend some time with some young men who are uh, in training for the pastorate. And also then this last week, uh, took a quick trip to California uh, since I'm on the board of advisors for Chafer Theological Seminary just to meet with their faculty and spend some time talking with them and doing a little teaching uh, in terms of uh, where they're going and the uh, development of that seminary. It's not easy to begin a seminary, and this is a tremendous task. Uh, Dr. Meisinger shared with me on numerous occasions that if he had even an inkling of what was going to be involved in this 10 years ago when we started Schaefer Seminary, he would have run the other way just as fast as possible because it is a extremely time-consuming uh, endeavor to try to start a seminary because it's not just a matter of having classes and getting some teachers together, but you have a number of state regulations and requirements. You have uh, financial things that you have to take care of. You have a tremendous number of logistical responsibilities involved uh, that just make it possible to begin to train men. And the school there is, is uh, the Lord seems to be blessing. It's got the first decade almost behind the school, and there are an increasing number of men who are showing interest in, in uh, Chafer Seminary. So we spent this last uh, retreat talking about the values that we hold dear. Those of us who come out of a of a doctrinal church background have a different perspective of the role in ministry and the philosophy of ministry that should govern a local church. And it is not always uh, a view that is clearly understood by those who have not grown up in a doctrinal church or been directly influenced by Pastor Theme and, and his... Uh, unique vision of the purpose of the local church as a training ground and teaching ground to prepare uh, believers in the body of Christ to do the work of ministry, where the emphasis is not on programs and the emphasis is not on on uh, creating certain environments within the local church, almost a superficial type of thing to encourage people to do certain things or to, to get in, fit somebody's idea of what the Christian life is and to get involved in evangelism programs or youth programs or women's Bible studies or all the different things that you normally associate with many churches, but which in fact really do not produce people who understand the Word of God and who can think biblically. And when you change your focus in, a, in philosophy of ministry to training people to think biblically and you get rid of some of that other stuff, people who have grown up in traditional church environments have a difficult time somehow uh, making the correlation. It's hard to describe what a, what a purple elephant looks like to somebody who has never seen an elephant and doesn't, and doesn't know what the color purple is. And that's uh, sort of a rough analogy of what it is to describe to some men who have gone through seminary, have pastoral experience, to describe from them a different vision of what the local church is all about when they've not only never seen it, but they have been taught a rather biased, prejudicial view in their pastoral ministries courses that that really doesn't work and that you're just, uh, uh, most people won't come, people won't be involved, and it involves a realization that, well, the people who won't come and aren't uh, interested in learning the word really aren't positive to doctrine. They're positive to church. They're positive to social relations. They're positive to fellowship, but they're not positive to doctrine. And since they're not positive to doctrine, ignore them. Focus on the people who are positive to doctrine, even if it's only 10 or 15, and teach them and rely upon God to provide the hearers and to provide the resources. And uh, remember, above all, that Jesus Christ said he would build the church, and he directed to the pastor-teacher the responsibility to feed the sheep. And as I say so often, the problem today is that pastors think it's their responsibility to build a church, and they leave it up to Sunday school teachers who are, for the most part, untrained amateurs to feed the sheep. So the sheep are roughly are unfed, starving to death, ignorant of doctrine, and pastors are involved in counseling, they're involved in uh, leadership, they're involved in vision-making, they're involved in managing a corporation, 
but they are not spending their time studying and teaching, studying and teaching and feeding the sheep. And yet these are the men that have supposedly gone through seminary, studied the original languages, studied theology. These are the men who are trained or should have been trained to, to teach the word and to feed the sheep, and yet that's the one thing they're not doing. They're leaving it up to uh, someone else. So we're in a passage that directly relates to that. Uh, we started this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And what we have seen in our study so far is that what Paul begins with here is the present middle imperative of the verb logizomai, which means to think in a certain way. It is followed by the, or the sentence actually begins in the Greek with the, uh, ad, the demonstrative adverb hutos, which means to such a degree or in such a manner. And so what Paul states here is an imperative or a mandate to every believer to think in a certain manner uh, regarding those who are in the professional ministry of communicating doctrine. In the early church age, that involved apostles and prophets as well as pastors, pastor teachers and evangelists. But the gift of apostle and pastor and a prophet passed from the scene at the end of the first century with the death of the apostle John, the last of the apostles. And so the only two communication gifts that are left for the church age are evangelist and pastor teacher. And according to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the purpose, the primary purpose for the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor teacher is to train the saints, equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is the saints, the believers in the body of Christ who perform the work of ministry, not the pastor, teacher, or the evangelist. Notice the evangelist is not said in that passage to be primarily concerned with evangelism, although that's his spiritual gift. The gift of evangelism is given to train people in the congregation to do evangelism. The gift of evangelist is given to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And in that context, that means that one of the primary purposes of someone with the gift of evangelism is to train other believers to witness. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen so much. Usually the evangelist is seen as someone who is out there doing evangelism, witnessing, being involved in in some sort of ministry that is primarily related to communicating the gospel to the unbeliever. And you rarely see evangelists coming into a local church to teach uh, believers how to witness. What you do get is a pastor teacher who may not have the gift of evangelism uh, teaching believers how to witness. And somehow that's almost like the blind leading the blind sometimes because that's not his area of spiritual giftedness. So believers need to recognize that uh, they're to think in a certain way regarding those who are gifted in communication ministry. They are as servants of Christ, Paul says. And the verb there for, or excuse me, the noun there for servants is not the word one might expect here, one we find later in the passage. It's not diakonos, but it is huperetas. And huperetas, as I stated last time, derives from a noun which described the rowers in a, in a, Greek ship, a trireme that had usually three decks of galley slaves who were rowing, and this referred to the rowers who were there to, uh, under the authority of the commander of the ship, and they're designed to fulfill his commands. And the emphasis here is that the pastor teacher, by application, of course, interpretation refers first and foremost to apostles, but to pastor teachers are not here to serve their own agenda, promote their own opinions, although sometimes people think that what I teach is just my opinion. It's not my opinion. It is the clear statement of the Word of God. Pastors are to uh, avoid teaching their own opinion, and they are to teach what the Word of God says, that we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. That is whom we serve. We don't serve other pastors. We don't serve anyone else in the body of Christ. We are directly under the authority of Jesus Christ and carrying out the mission and ministry as defined by the Word of God and not by anyone else. As such, pastors are not 
uh, to be viewed as employees of the church, which too often happens in some congregations. They're not just one of, uh, in some churches where there's a plurality of elders. What's happened since the 60s is a a reduction of the respect for the pastor. What happened back in the 60s in this nation is something that very few people understand in terms of all of its implications, but there was a revolt against authority by the baby boomers in the 60s, and that worked its way out in churches in, uh, in many ways and was most evident, I think, in the uh, church growth movement. And back in the early days of that that movement in the early 70s was about the time I was going to seminary. And what you would often see is an emphasis on a return to what was called body life. And in body life, there's a return to emphasis to all of the spiritual gifts within the body. And uh, that was that was a good, good emphasis, but it tr- tended to reduce the pastor-teacher down to the same level as every other person in the body of Christ. And in some sense, we're all equal in that we all are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all members of the body. But there's a leadership role and a responsibility role that the pastor-teacher has, and he's in a position of authority, and he's been placed in the local church to lead the local church according to the uh, vision. And I don't mean a, that in the sense of a revelatory vision that God gives him, but in terms of how the Lord is leading him to lead that congregation. And no two pastors are going to lead the same congregation the same way because God has uh, may have a different plan at different stages in the history of a congregation in order to train and prepare the, the sheep in that congregation so that you will have a pastor for 5, 10, 15, 20 years in a congregation, and he will lead it as far as he can lead it. And then the Lord may say, well, the congregation has changed. We need somebody else in command now to take them in a slightly different direction and balance things out. And so there's a shift in command, and another pastor comes in. And you often hear people say, well, we never did it this way before. And I always remember a a pastor down in Houston wrote a book many years ago called The Seven uh, last words of the church. We never did it that way before. No one, no, no thinking Christian who cares anything about advancing in the spiritual life should ever utter those deadly words because the Lord uh, may have new things and, and as a different pastor comes in, he may have different uh, strengths and he will definitely have uh, different abilities than a previous pastor. And so what happens sometimes is a congregation over a period of 10, 15, or 20 years will come to reflect both the strengths and the weaknesses of their pastor. And so God will bring in a new pastor who will have different strengths, and he will identify some areas where perhaps the congregation has been uh, inadequately prepared or uh, where there are weaknesses, and he's going to shore up those previous weaknesses. And he may not be as strong in some areas as the previous pastor was, but he is now God's uh, leader for that congregation. And there are always one or two folks in a congregation when a new pastor comes in who who uh, don't want to follow the leadership of the new pastor. And, and their job is simply to quietly disappear out the back door if they don't want to submit to the leadership of the new pastor and to, uh, and to move on and not to create trouble because the new pastor is the man that God has put in place in that congregation. He is a servant of Christ. He is not a employee of the church. He is not an employee of the board of deacons. He is the leader. And it, as I stated a couple of weeks ago, that's difficult and a real test of humility in a lot of congregations and a lot of deacon boards because in some churches they go through a period of maybe 10 or 15 years where they might go through two or three or four or even in some cases five pastors. And the, the natural sin nature human viewpoint response to a situation like that is the pastor's temporary Every pastor that comes through here has a different agenda. We're permanent. We set the agenda. He just works for us. But that is a deadly approach, and it's a, a almost a self-inflicted wound on a local congregation for a board of deacons to adopt that sort of mentality. So in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says, Let a man, let each believer, the use of the word anthropos means... Uh, Everyone includes both male and female. Let a man regard us in such a manner as uh, those under the authority of Jesus Christ and stewards of the mysteries of Christ. And the word steward there is 
the noun oikonomos related to another noun oikonomia, which relates to a dispensation. But oikonomos is a word for an administrator or steward. It's not often. It's a stewardship is associated with finances, but it is not essentially a financial term, but a term emphasizing responsibility. A, an oikonomos was the head servant. He was the household administrator in a large household where there were a number of servants and slaves. This is the one who was placed over everyone. So he is. Uh, an administrator, a manager, someone who had responsibility for the administration of the household. So a, this is another term that is used to describe the function of a pastor teacher. His role is to administer the household of God. That is that segment of the body of Christ that has been entrusted to him as an under shepherd of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is a, he has a specific responsibility and that is defined here in context that he is a steward or he is the responsible manager of the mysteries of God. Notice it is restricted to doctrine. The mysteries of God and the term mystery it relates to previously unrevealed doctrine. It's not something that's necessarily difficult to understand. Mystery doesn't refer to something that is abstruse, something that is that is obscure, but it refers to things that have not been previously revealed. I want you to hold your place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want you to just turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to point out one aspect of, of uh, this concept of mystery in Ephesians 1, specifically starting in verse 9 uh, down through about verse 11. This is cutting into the middle of one of the longest Greek sentences in the New Testament, but I don't have time and I don't want to go through the effort of exegeting and developing the context here. I just want to point out one little uh, insight. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, there's our word mysterion again, that God has made known to us, and the us here is the apostles who are the responsible uh, uh Agents who are human agents who gave, who were the custodians of revelation, having made known to us the mystery of his will, previously unrevealed doctrine related to the will of God, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, there's the word orkonomion, which relates to uh, the administration of an age. The term dispensation is not primarily a term related to time. You pick that up from other Greek words related to dispensation, such as aeon. The term uh, dispensation or arkanomia has to do with uh, administration or management of a particular uh, era. The emphasis is not on the time frame, but on the administration, how God is administering that time of human history that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that is a term that refers to the millennial kingdom. So the mystery of his will, that is that which is communicated today, that is unrevealed truth for the church age, has a focal point. And that focal point is not just today, it is the future. It is for the millennium, that these mysteries are given today that in the future, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, he's writing this in a context where up to this point in human history, God has uh, planned for the millennial kingdom has primarily focused on the Jews. The Jews thought of the millennial kingdom as their kingdom. They were the ones who were going to rule and reign. You have passages such as Isaiah 2, which talks about how all of the nations will come to the holy mountain of God to worship. So Israel looks at the messianic age and the millennial kingdom as primarily a Jewish age and that the emphasis there would be on the Jews ruling with Christ. But what ha- what Paul is saying here in terms of the mystery is God has revealed new information in the church age that the future time, the future millennium, is not a time that is going to be restricted to Jewish 
rule, but there is going to be now a new group of people that are going to be brought in that are going to have co-responsibilities in the dispensation of the fullness of time, and they will be brought together uh, in one household so that the future millennial will be shared. This doesn't mean that the distinction between, when I say one household, I don't mean that the distinction between Israel and the church breaks down but that there's a new element brought in and that was not revealed before, and that is the church age. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that is in the future millennium, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And the emphasis on this is the key word here is inheritance. And so the mystery doctrines primarily relate to how Gentiles are now included with Jews in a unique body, the church, and how that unique body, the church, is being prepared to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the dispensation of the millennial kingdom. So it takes us back to doctrines that we have spent a lot of time studying in terms of inheritance, in terms of the judgment seat of Christ, in terms of uh, uh, roles and responsibilities that we will have in the coming kingdom. And this is the responsibility of the pastor-teacher. He is to teach these things and to teach the Christian way of life, the unique uh, Christian way of life, church-age ways, um, the unique spiritual life of the church age, so that believers in this age are prepared to assume their responsibilities as those who will co-reign with Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. Now let's go back to our passage. We are stewards, we are managers, we have a responsibility for communicating the mysteries of God, that is, the revelation of God. The emphasis is not on building the church. It's not on church growth. It's not on managing programs. It's not on counseling. It is on communicating to believers what God has revealed in the New Testament with primary emphasis on the unique spiritual life of the church age. That's that's its focal point. Everything else, there's, we have to teach the whole counsel of God. Have, that doesn't exclude teaching the Old Testament because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things were written as an example for us. So that includes teaching the entire uh, scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, but it ultimately feeds into that that purpose of communicating to believers how to live the unique spiritual life of the church age for the purpose of preparing us to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the future millennial kingdom and to glorify him. Now, in order to do this, we have to recognize what is what God's evaluative framework is for pastor teachers, and that's verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards. That word takes us right back to verse 1 so we know precisely what Paul is talking about. He is talking about those who have this responsibility to communicate the gospel. What is required of them is that they be found faithful. And this is the Greek noun pistos, which means to be faithful, to be trustworthy, and, and to be responsible in terms of one's mission. So the mission given the pastor-teacher is to communicate the mystery doctrines of the church age. He is not to be not the man who's there to visit those who visit the church. He's not to emphasize church growth. He's not there for, to conduct a social plan for the church. He's not there to uh, implement some social agenda for the society at large. He is not there to be the hospital visitor. He's not there to be the friend and buddy of people in the congregation. He is there for the primary purpose of teaching the Word of God and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry in relationship to the mystery doctrine of the church age. So how is the the pastor to be faithful? We began this last time. How is the man with the gift of pastor, teacher, or evangelism... 
How is that man to be faithful? Point number one, he is to be faithful in his preparation. He is to be faithful in his preparation. As he uh, begins to grow and mature in his spiritual life, it will become evident to the man who has this gift, and only men are given the gift of pastor-teacher. It is not a gift for women. No woman will ever be qualified to be a pastor-teacher because one of the qualifications, to to go to the most simple argument, one of the qualifications for a pastor-teacher is there to be the husband of one wife. So since women can't meet that qualification, that automatically excludes women from that leadership position. It doesn't mean that women are are any less significant. It doesn't mean that they can't teach. I have certainly been exposed to some women in my um, career who can out-teach a lot of pastors that I know and whose grasp of doctrine is far exceeds many pastors that I know. It is not a matter of ability or capability. It is a matter of how God has designed uh, different roles and how God has designed the male soul and the female soul. And the male soul is the designed to be the initiator and the leader. And when you put a woman in any kind of responsibility where she is teaching the Word of God, she is functioning in a male role, and it is doing damage to her soul. And it always amazes me because there are uh, some women who are engaged in uh, various teaching uh, ministries around the country, how many women flock to those things. Yet there is no passage in the Scripture, not one, to authorize a woman to ever handle the Word of God in terms of teaching adults in the local church or in any kind of parachurch ministry. It is not there. The only passage people go to is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says that older women should teach younger women. They usually stop there. But if you're careful to observe the text, it says older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, and to be good workers in the home. And there's not one word there about older women teaching younger women the Word of God. And so whenever you get involved in any kind of ministry where you are listening to a woman teach the Word of God, you are basically in carnality and you are involved in an unauthorized ministry. And no matter how accurate that woman's teaching might be, it is wrong and it is uh, distorting the truth. Now, a pastor, a man who has a gift of pastor-teacher, as he becomes aware of it, he needs to begin to prepare to utilize that gift, just as any other believer in the body of Christ is to utilize their spiritual gift. Now, unfortunately, there are men who have the gift of pastor-teacher who, because of uh, rebellion in their life, because they don't get with the uh, plan to grow to spiritual maturity and later in life because they've made bad decisions when they have been young, they limit their future options. There are men who, because of certain decisions they have made when they're in their teen, late teen years or in their 20s where they have pursued other goals and they end up getting married or having uh, children or getting involved in certain other responsibilities, they'll never be able to fully function in that gift of pastor-teacher because bad decisions always limit future options. No matter what area you're, your area you are in, when you make bad decisions, it will limit your future options. And so there are some that are never going to be able to do what they ought to do. And for those people, it's okay to go through uh, correspondence courses. You can never learn the original languages by correspondence courses. You may learn a few things, and that is, that's helpful. But to be a, a good and successful exegete of the Scriptures, you have to sit in a classroom and be taught by someone who knows how to do it. Exegesis cannot be learned from listening to someone else teach the Word of God. No one can listen to me teach the Word of God and learn exegesis. You may learn a thing or two here or there, but the only way you learn to do exegesis is to do exegesis. And you have to sit in a classroom and be given daily assignments to go home and work on certain passages and to do certain things and to turn those assignments in, get graded, get marked up, interact with the professors. Why did you, why was this wrong? Why was that wrong? That sort of thing. So there, the languages have to be taught in a classroom setting. Now, some of the interesting things that are coming up today 
some of the computer programs in the Internet may make it possible to do some things like that from a from a from without everybody being together in the same place this new program that i used to uh, that's just uh, one of the most remarkable bible study tools available today called Libronics has within it a a a system that that i've just br- briefly heard referred to and i don't think it's fully operational yet where supposedly you can get a a teacher and a number of students from all over the country into uh, like a chat room on the internet, and you can have one teacher utilizing this program and teach through the through the internet uh, students who are scattered around the country. And then Bryce was just telling me this last week that there's a uh, sort of a verbal website, a voice website, where you can get on in a chat room and you can get up to five people in a chat room and verbally talk and discuss things back and forth. And that's great even for men who are overseas. And Jim Myers and I are beginning to knock this thing around to see if there's some potential where it's possible that if that someone here in the States utilizing this kind of a, a chat room with him getting on the Internet in Kiev and utilizing uh, the uh, LCD projector and putting the Greek and Russian text up on the screen in the classroom over there, that I could actually sit in my study here and teach through an interpreter over there, uh, just like being on a speakerphone, and teach a class that way. So there's some remarkable things that can be done, but... But for the time being, face-to-face instruction in the classroom is important, not just, be, not just for, for the more obvious reasons, but also because it teaches academic discipline, it teaches uh, humility to the students in the classroom. You can't short-circuit the process. And one of the problems we've got in our society today is we've developed a drive-through fast food mentality about so many things that we get the idea that somehow we can take shortcuts and short-circuit the process. And what we get is a bunch of half-baked fast food pastor teachers who can't really exegete the scriptures and end up making a lot of mistakes and end up creating a lot of problems in congregations because they have tried to take a shortcut in the training process. And uh, it's always been very convicting to me to realize that uh, 200 years ago, when most men entered seminary, they had more language training at the time they started seminary than most seminary graduates have today um, when they end seminary. And I'm talking about men who have majored in the languages, not those who have just tried to get by on minimum requirements. So a, a young man has to be faithful First of all, to go to seminary and to get the training. And, in an, and, and I'm often asked, as I was just this uh, last week, I got a phone call from a young man, and he wanted to know what kind of training he should have as an undergraduate to prepare to go to seminary. And he was, he was thinking, well, I don't know of any school in the area where I am where, where classics are taught, where I could take classical Greek or, or Latin. Well, that's, that's fine if you can go that way, but, but there is no one area of preparation. As I think about the different disciplines that a young man can uh, major in, I think he should take studies in philosophy, especially in logic, needs to study history, needs to study English, take courses in speech, debate. Uh, in today's technological environment, he needs to understand things about computers so that undergraduate education can focus on any number of different disciplines, that all of which will be important or significant or play a role in that future ministry. And then in terms of choosing a seminary, a seminary should be chosen because it has an emphasis in the original languages and theology. Now today, because some of the older, more solid seminaries that were uh, around in, in the 60s and 70s have sort of drifted and are no longer places where uh, many of us would want to recommend students to go to, there have been a number of new seminaries crop up which have uh, are seeking to fill the gap. Some of these have an emphasis more on apologetics. Some have a little bit more emphasis on theology. But the emphasis of the seminary needs to be across the board, and there needs to be a stress on learning the original languages and, and developing exegetical uh, skills and the ability to get into the text and study it. And the only seminary I know that has really thought that through in a in a holistic manner, in a consistent way, is Chafer Seminary out in uh, Southern California. 
and they are, as far as we're concerned, the only seminary out there that is is pretty close overall to our our uh, our theology. And that is a school that I would recommend first and foremost because they emphasize a free grace understanding of the gospel. They are dispensational. They emphasize the original languages. And even so, uh, you could go there and you would discover that there are professors who teach different views and that, that what we hold on some things, on, on minor things. That is always true. There is no seminary. There has never been a seminary in the existence of the human race where you could send somebody where they would agree 100% with everything that was taught by every professor. Somewhere along the line, men started getting the idea that, well, I'm not going to go to seminary because I might hear something I don't disagree with and I don't, you know, I don't want to put up with that. The arrogance that is included in that is just absolutely mind-boggling. You will never go anywhere in life where you're not going to be exposed to something that you might not agree with. And my, my, it might be something that's right and you're wrong and you have to rethink your position. And even if you're in a classroom and you're going to college somewhere and you're in a history classroom or in a science classroom and you're hearing things that you don't agree with, it gives you the opportunity and the motivation to go home and do your own study to see if you can demonstrate to the satisfaction of your own thinking that you have a better solution than what you heard in the classroom. So you're at least going to learn by negation. And sometimes that's going to make you stronger than if you're just spoon-fed everything that you already agree with because that doesn't force you to think and develop critical thinking skills. So we have to remember that seminary training is designed not only to uh, teach content but also to teach critical thinking skills. And when you go to seminary and you sit in the classroom, you're going to learn important Secondary things such as academic discipline, humility, teachability. You're going, you should learn professional, uh, certain professional skills because when a young man comes out of college, and I remember coming out of, out of college uh, where, uh, back in the 70s when you dressed up, you put on a clean t-shirt and you would wear cutoffs and sandals and sit in class. And then when I went to Dallas Seminary, we were all required to wear a coat and tie. And, you know, some guys would just show up with like a windbreaker and a tie on and look like they had picked up the tie down at Goodwill. And they, and especially the crowd from Southern California really hated that. I mean, they just, they just balked at that. But what was happening was the seminary recognized that you weren't just teaching, uh, the important things such as theology and language, but you were also molding and shaping young men and maturing them so that when they got out, they could function in a professional world and lead a congregation. And so you also are teaching uh, protocol issues. You're teaching professionalism so that these are men who can can uh, go out and assume the level of responsibilities expected of a pastor-teacher. As a pastor, once a man goes out and goes into the pastorate, he needs to, the second point is, is that he is to be faithful to continue his, his education. Not only faithful in his preparation, but faithful to continue your education. You see, seminary comes from the Latin word seminal, which means seed. All you get in seminary are the seeds of your education. And you spend the rest of your life as a pastor, uh, Learning more and more. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. The more I study, the more I'm exposed to men who have majored in other areas. For example, this last week, again, I got to spend some time when I was out at the retreat with the faculty with Schaefer Seminary. got to spend some more time with Dr. John Niemela, and I'm just uh, impressed with his grasp of Greek and his grasp of many different things related to the uh, original languages, the original manuscripts, the transmission of the text, and many of the things that he, because he was a, a decade or a decade and a half after me going through seminary, many of the things that he knows were things that were not taught or were not necessarily available when I went through seminary. And so I, I always go to something like that and I come back uh, learning as much and receiving as much as I hope I've, I've been able to, to give and provide and to sit down with men who, who understand certain things. And, and one of the uh, important things that 
as part of exegesis is is doing diagramming, diagramming Greek. Now, most of you just sort of, as soon as I said the word diagramming, you remembered diagramming English sentences. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Back in the fourth grade or fifth grade, and you just sort of get this empty feeling in the pit of your stomach. Well, think about doing that with Greek. But it's important, and it's something that we were taught to some degree when I went through, but apparently they emphasized it more later on. And so I picked up some things, but he's also using a, a, a computer program called Excel to, to do this. And I, he was showing me some things. They're trying to uh, help me to understand how to do that. And, and it's going to take a few more lessons to do that. But it's important to have that ongoing education. And in light of that, Chafer Seminary, which uh, George Meisinger has really carried the torch in, in keeping these uh, national teaching pastor conferences going over the last uh, 20 years, and they now are moving that to where it's going to be an annual meeting at Chafer Seminary each each March. But in order to strengthen the ties between Chafer Seminary and the congregations, the doctrinal churches out there that are supporting the seminary, they're going to try to have uh, regional pastors' conferences that are designed to provide some ongoing education. And so in January, things like January 13th, 14th, and 15th, um, North Stonington, and we'll be involved with this as well, or we're going to be co-hosting with them to some degree. Jay and I haven't talked about this and worked out all the details yet, but we will be co-hosting a pastors' conference up here, uh, the, and there'll be a couple, uh, Dr. Steve Lewis, who is the academic dean at Schaefer Seminary, and Dr. Nimola will be coming out here. And that's one of the things that uh, uh, Dan will have to come up here for is because they're going to be spending a lot of time teaching some things on uh, uh, for pastors on, on diagramming and getting into the Greek using these computer tools. And this is the important thing. Congregations need to have a vision for the fact that their pastors need to continue to keep up with some of these these studies and to uh, not just think that they can sit back and, and coast on what they got when they were in seminary. I have over 240 postgraduate hours in study, and most of the time I get around other guys like this who've emphasized in other areas, and I realize how abysmally ignorant I am in some areas. And this is one of the greatest problems that... Uh, comes to the pastorate is academic arrogance thinking that they have reached some level where they they know most of it or they know all of it and you just have to recognize that grace orientation means the rec- means admitting that you don't know it all and you have to continue learning and educating yourself throughout the entire life of, of the pastorate this is why it's important for pastors to go to conferences like the uh, National Teaching Pastors Conference, the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, the Conservative Theological Society. Now, I know that many pastors don't have the time and can't go to all of these kinds of meetings, for sometimes for financial reasons, sometimes for uh, other, other uh, considerations, but they should go to those that they can because there are so many things that are going on today, so many men that are specializing in certain areas of study that it helps to, to uh, uh, piggyback on, on their work and to learn from their, their studies and their investigations. And I find that there are certain pastors who never go to these kinds of things and that... Um, uh, as a result of that, I find that they are usually ignorant of important trends in the present age and therefore will fall short in some areas of preparing their congregations to handle the subtle nuances the devil constantly throws at us. See, even though doctrine never changes, what happens is Satan is constantly manipulating the cosmic system and false teaching to imitate the truth more and more. And so what someone is taught in the 70s in seminary doesn't necessarily fit what's going on in the 80s. Now, the basic core issues are the same, but what's happened is that the terminology has shifted. And so you find people who, who hear certain things and they, they, um, 
they, uh, they, they think it sounds good, but they don't realize what's really being said because they haven't kept up with the, the shifting emphasis and the, the subtle nuances of false teaching that the devil constantly throws at us. I also find that men that don't go to these kinds of conferences are usually arrogant, and they're operating on feelings of inadequacy. Usually they, they can't handle being in an, in an environment where other views are held or someone holds opinions on certain passages that are different from theirs. And so uh, they, they don't know how to sit in an in a environment and dialogue with somebody who, who perhaps has a slightly different position than they do. I don't mean a heretical position, but we hone each other. I remember back in the back in the 70s listening to different people teach some passages, for example, in John chapter 15, which is a passage on, on abiding. I remember listening to... Uh, uh, a tape that Charlie Clough taught back then and a tape that Pastor Theme when he went through that passage and some others that I, when I was studying that passage because it's a difficult passage, I was listening to some things that were taught back in the 60s and 70s before these, these issues with free grace and lordship crystallized in the 80s. And you'd listen to men, even, even the first time I taught John 15 back in the early 80s, uh, what, I would treat one verse from a free grace perspective, and then I'd turn around. The way I was interpreting the next verse was from a lordship perspective almost. And it's because these issues hadn't really been crystallized for us in the debates that took place over the gospel in the 80s. And now these things are, are, are much more clear to us. And so men who... who uh, who don't keep up and don't get involved in these kinds of things are cheating themselves and cheating their own uh, congregations. But unfortunately, they usually operate from feelings of inadequacy or inferiority because they uh, they don't uh, they they don't know how to handle being in that kind of environment, and they've never really learned how to think because what happens is, in many cases, they never went to seminary where you sit around most of the time and argue theology from every perspective in the world with everybody, with all the other students. That's, that's how you hone your critical thinking skills. And I often hear some pastors say, well, I don't want to go to that because, you know, pastors just get around and talk about the size of their congregations and, and uh, they're, they're, they're legalistic and I don't want to put up with that. And I don't know what conferences they go to, but the conferences I go to aren't characterized by that. We sit around and we crank open some kind of difficult passage and we say, how do, how do you handle the Greek here? What, what, what nuance of the present tense do you think that is? Well, what do you do with this passage over here? How does that relate to this? And we, we open the scriptures and we dig into things and we, we knock things back and forth and we talk about, uh, how the best way is to explain these things to, to our congregations and, and, uh, some of the things that we've been reading that have been really helpful and, and, uh, that's, that's what's important there. The Old Testament uses the concept of iron sharpening iron. So men who don't go to ongoing educational conferences shortchange themselves, shortchange their their con- congregations. Usually, they uh, result of this they can't spot a false teacher when they see one. I have been amazed sometimes when I've heard a number of people over the last five or ten years who've come out of doctrinal churches will make comments and they'll say, "Well, have you ever watched so and so on on television?" And this is—I won't mention the pastor's name, but he's a guy down in down in San Antonio, and uh, he's really good. I say yeah, he's a classic Pentecostal, and I mean, I'm talking with people who've grown up in doctrinal churches. They say no, he's not a Pentecostal because you see, sometimes we represent Pentecostals as the extreme form that are all emotional and and wacko and bouncing off the walls and and the, the the Benny Hinn types who are slaying everybody. In front. But this guy's not that way. He's a classic Pentecostal. That means that in many ways he's much more biblical, and he's probably not going to be involved in any of this, uh, any any kind of the, the uh, extreme uh, tongue speaking in the main meeting of the local church. But he's a classic Pentecostal. But because these people haven't been taught to think in, in, in certain ways, they can't identify him, and so you start trusting a man like that, and then sooner or later, some little uh, nuances related to his Pentecostalism is going to slip in, and people aren't going to spot it because they've learned to trust him in some areas, and they haven't been able to identify where this man's coming from. And that's because pastors don't keep up. They're ignorant of what the, what's going on in the world, and they, just, they always say, well, I'm just going to stick to my own knitting, which means I'm going to be pretty ignorant because I'm just going to rely on my own frame of reference and my own background, 
and uh, I'm going to just sit and listen to a tape recorder, and I'm going to operate in a very narrow uh, framework. And I have no respect for a pastor like that because he is shortchanging his congregation and shortchanging the Lord in terms of developing his own spiritual gift. And then another reason that I have discovered to go to things like this, when you're a young pastor, you're still learning a lot of things. And I would go and I would just soak up uh, things. I would go and I'd hear a guy give a paper on on the differences between progressive dispensationalism and and a traditional dispensationalism. And 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 you know, years ago, I didn't really understand all the differences there, and I would just soak that up. But I've realized in the last few years that I'm beyond that, and I'm going to these conferences not because of what I'm going to get, but to provide some leadership to younger men who need that because there are very few pastors out there today who have the kind of vision that we were given back in the 70s. They've lost that. They've gotten diverted into praise and worship and church growth and all of these other things. And there's a desperate need for men who have been well grounded in the, in the doctrinal teaching and the and the philosophy of ministry of doctrinal churches to be involved in some of these groups so that they can pass the torch, so that they can be examples, so that they can encourage and lead some of these newer, younger pastors because many of these guys are, are pointed in the right direction, but they don't have the somebody there who, who's gone two or three miles further down the road to, to lead them, so they're trying to, 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 to pathfind their own way yet without someone who can, who can guide and direct them. So, so that's important. Uh, pastors need to be faithful in time management. This is one of the greatest challenges of a pastor is to manage his time and his priorities. And while his number one priority is to study and teach, he also has responsibilities to, to lead the congregation. He has, uh, in, in a, as the smaller the church, the more he has other responsibilities in terms uh, of administration, in terms of, of a, perhaps secretarial responsibilities, things uh, of that nature. He has his own personal responsibilities. He has to be, he is to be responsible and faithful in his own spiritual growth and his own spiritual life. And then he has responsibilities in terms of his family. And he has to be faithful in terms of his family responsibilities. Recently I heard someone make a comment about a man who was being ordained that he would, he might have problems carrying out that role because he already was married and had several children, and that would make it difficult for him to make the sacrifices that you have to make as a pastor. I wanted to shoot that person. That's the most shallow, stupid, superficial idea, and he came from a deacon, a man who should know better. You know, it, it, what he's basically saying is a man can't be a pastor unless he's a celibate, unless he doesn't have children or family. And yet the scriptures are rich with the idea that, that, that children are a blessing from the Lord and that a, a pastor, in fact, both in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, emphasize the fact that a, a pastor, that if, if, if he's married, he's to be the husband of one wife, and he's a father, his children should be faithful. That's, that's part of what will round out a man in many, in many cases, and it is not a distraction from the ministry. That's just, I mean, that's just such idiocy for somebody to even make a, make a statement like that. So uh, uh, a steward is not only faithful in terms of his responsibilities to teach the Word, but also in his own personal responsibilities of spiritual life as a father and as a, as a husband. So that's dealing with, let's say, first point, faithful in preparation. Second point, faithful in continuing his education. Third, faithful in time management, priorities, and ministry. Fourth, he is um, not to try to reinvent the wheel. See, the pastor doesn't need to constantly reinvent everything. He can build on what others have done, uh, build on what his pastor taught him, and develop that. That is exactly what happened. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, built on the system of theology that was given to him by uh, C.I. Schofield. Pastor theme built on the system of theology that was taught him when he went through Dallas Seminary by Lewis Berry Chafer. He built and he developed that. And that system will continue to be built on and developed by other pastor teachers as time goes on. That is how doctrine develops. It's not that we have new truth. It is that as each pastor comes along and does more work, 
uh, our understanding of doctrine develops and increases as time goes by. The pastor is not trying to reinvent the wheel or come up with new things, and sometimes you have pastors who get the idea that they always need to have certain breakthroughs in doctrine, and that is uh, not the focus. It is to teach the Word. And that's one of the things in our society, we always want something new. But the Bible doesn't give us something new. It's the same doctrine, the same scriptures that Paul gave in the first century. It's not new. So we're not, the, the basics of, of doctrine don't change. One of the refreshing things at the uh, Conservative Theological Society meeting was professor that I was a uh, teaching a to in Dallas 25 years ago got up and taught, and it was just like what he taught 25 years ago. Doctrine doesn't change. Now, the issues presented by the world often change, and so you have to sometimes moderate, modify what you're saying so that it deals with what the current issues are are in, in that generation. Uh, where am I? Point five, the pastor teachers... Uh, not to simply warm up someone else's leftovers. See, that's what happens with some guys who don't go through all of the training. All they can do is take what somebody else has cooked and prepared to give the sheep, and then they reheat it in the microwave, so to speak, and give it to their congregation. And I, I don't understand how people in congregations who have had pastors who have gone to seminary and, and studied the Word and can get into the text for themselves can go to somebody who, who just has been schooled to reheat food in the microwave and serve leftovers. seems like they're cheating themselves. Biggest point number six, the danger in the pastor-teacher is arrogance. There's antinomian arrogance in many pastors. They, they don't want to be accountable to anyone in any area. And as I pointed out last time, there is an accountability to some level to the, to the deacon board, not in terms of how he conducts his ministry, but in terms of being faithful to the doctrinal statement of the local congregation and in terms of being, being obedient to and maintaining the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There's authority arrogance where some pastors seek to extend their authority beyond the pulpit and to actually get in the face of people in their daily lives. For example, I know of pastors who, for example, taught a class on marriage, and then during the next week they see some couple not applying what was taught on Sunday, and so they get in their face and say, why aren't you applying what I just taught on Sunday? Well, that's an authority arrogance, and that's moving into tyranny, and that's unauthorized by the Scripture. Uh, third, there's financial arrogance where pastors seek to fleece the sheep, and they they are motivated by money. And I know of a case recently was just informed of of a, of a pastor who's been very solid and turned out some excellent work uh, down in the uh, Dallas area who apparently was was brought up on charges in his congregation because he was mishandling the finances of the church. See, he really shouldn't have done that because he had three elders in his church who were tax lawyers. You, you, some of these guys just, you know, it's like they lack good sense. See, arrogance blinds you. There's academic arrogance and those who have seminary training looking down on those who don't. See, there are always exceptions. There are, Lewisbury Chafer did not have the original language, but he was an exception. There have been others in history who haven't had the ability to go to seminary, and yet God has used them exceptionally. So when I emphasize the standard, you, you always set the standard not on the basis of the exceptions, but what, on it sh- what it should be. And occasionally there are going to be men who come along who are gifted communicators and, and they are able to study and they, they're able to learn on their, on their own. And uh, God is going to use them in, in great ways. But that doesn't mean that we lower the standard because someone exceptional has come along who didn't, uh, wasn't able to get all of the qualifications that they should have. And I'm always reminded of, of uh, C.I. Schofield's comment to Dr. Chafer when Dr. Chafer was a young man and a musical evangelist, and, and uh, Schofield put his arm around him and said, Lewis, I think you'll have a great career as a teacher if you just had something to say. And, you know, Dr. Chafer was humble enough to recognize that he needed to learn the Word, and so he studied under his mentors, Dr. Schofield and, and Arno C. Gabeline and others, and he had the humility to tell that to his students in class. And see, too often seminary students get a little bloated thinking they have all the answers. And no, they just learned, got the tools to someday hopefully find the answers. 
There's success arrogance. It's always wrong for a pastor teacher to get his eyes on someone else's ministry, on its size, on its expansion, uh, to get his eyes on the lifestyle of some other pastor. And um, uh, there's many different areas where arrogance slips in to a pastor's life. Point number seven, pastors are not expected to do anything, expected by the Lord to do anything beyond feeding the sheep. They shouldn't get involved in, in politics, hospital visitation, administration. All of these things distract the pastor from doing his role. I talked to some pastors that are doing so many things, designing the building, the architecture of a new church. They're, they're involved in raising finances in the church. They're involved in all of these other things. They, they, and, and some pastors say, how do you know so much? Because I spend 40 hours, 50 hours a week studying, and, and, and they spend 10 hours a week studying. And then uh, the final point, a good pastor teacher is going to think outside of the box of traditional church implementation. By this, I don't mean he's going to come up with ideas such as the new ideas of church growth, uh, innovative or innovative culturally relevant programs. I don't mean that by, by thinking out of the box that he's going to use music that isn't traditional. See, all of that really is still thinking within the box of tradition, the traditional approach to the church. But he's going to think in terms of the fact that the, the job of the pastor teacher is to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. The job of the pastor is to teach people in the pew how to think about life biblically. And that's it. Everything else is secondary. If he's not accomplishing that task, it doesn't matter what else is being accomplished. He's failing to be faithful, a faithful steward of the ministries of God. Well, we'll come back next time and begin in verse 3 and look at how Paul is applying all of these things to the problem of divisions in the congregation of Corinth next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We're thankful that you have provided for the church pastor teachers, men who are gifted at communication, gifted to study the word. Father, we pray that those who, some will, who hear this message will be men who, young men, who have the gift of pastor teacher and will need to be challenged to, uh, assume the mantle of responsibility related to that gift to get the proper training and to continue the training that they need in order to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God's Word. Father, we pray if anyone here this morning is unsure or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Every human being is born under the penalty of death, the condemnation of spiritual death and eternal condemnation. But Jesus Christ came to earth. The second person of the Trinity took on humanity in order to go to the cross to pay the penalty for every single sin in human history. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny certain. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for you, and you are trusting him for eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. Help us to understand them and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.